Thank you, Cliff. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, if you're looking for Habakkuk in your Bible, uh, you can always use the table of contents. You can also find Matthew and then just go back toward the front, maybe 20, 30 pages, and you're probably going to be there. Uh, so Habakkuk, starting in chapter 1 and verse 1, going through our series through the book of Habakkuk that we'll be in for the next few months. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. I have never seen the Godfather. Not part 1, not part 2, not part 3. But I would call myself a movie buff. I love movies. I've seen hundreds of them. And yet, somehow, I've never seen the Godfather. I mean, according to the IMDb rating, we're talking about the second best movie of all time. It would appear on pretty much any list. And that's just the first one. The Godfather Part 2 supposedly is the fourth best movie of all time on that same list. And yet, I haven't seen a single second of any of those movies. But I think I could probably tell you some things about it, right? I mean, there's surely a Godfather in it. I think it's his daughter's wedding or something. Uh, He's a mafia boss. There's something, I think, about a horse's head. I'm pretty sure people get shot. They massacre his boy, something along those lines, right? That's it. That's all you need to know. That's The Godfather. I just gave it to you in like 15 seconds, the whole thing, all three movies right there. That's it. See, I'm pretty sure that I just nailed that. Having never seen the movies, I am incredibly confident that I just told you everything you need to know about that movie that I haven't seen, that movie I haven't studied, that movie I haven't understood. But if you've actually seen those movies, I'm sure there's someone in this crowd who has, you're probably right now thinking that I might be the dumbest man on the face of the planet, that I was way off. You're listing all of the things that I missed, all the things that I didn't understand, that I may have even taken from other movies that I also haven't seen and put into The Godfather. I don't know. You're thinking of all the things that I was reductive about, all the things that I left out, all the important pieces that aren't a part of my story that is The Godfather. And I'm afraid that Christians think about the Old Testament, but specifically the prophets, the minor prophets even more so, How I think about the Godfather. I've never read the script. I haven't spent any time with it. I haven't seen the movie. But I think I could probably guess what it's about. I think I know enough about it that it's probably not worth my time to sit down and watch however long it would take for me to correct my thinking. But if you're someone who's watched the movies, if you're someone who's studied the prophets, then you know exactly how wrong those ideas that I have are. You know exactly what's been missed. You know exactly what I'm missing. And you're just wishing right now that everyone else, me included, would take the time and the effort to appreciate it the way that you do. To understand it the way that you do. And that's part of my hope going through this series in Habakkuk. I would guess that there are plenty of people in the room who have never heard a single sermon from this book. Much less a whole series, a whole 10 or 11 weeks, all on this small Minor prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. If you have heard a sermon or a series, I'm sure it's been a while. I'm sure it's not something that you hear frequently. So I'm hoping that over these next several weeks, we'll be able to take the time, the effort, to understand and appreciate the book of Habakkuk so that we'll know what we've been missing this whole time. 
so that we'll come to not only know, but to understand and love this book and its story the way that it deserves, the way that it should be read. But before we get into the message and meaning of Habakkuk, which we will somewhat today, but more so in the coming weeks, there are some things we should understand about it before we actually read it that are going to help us understand it better, to interpret this book better. We see in verse 1 that this is the oracle of Habakkuk, or as my seminary professor pronounced it from the Hebrew, Habakkuk. Uh, Verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. But who is Habakkuk? If you've heard that term at all, that name at all, you've probably only heard it from this book of the Bible. Because it doesn't really appear anywhere else. We don't really know much about Habakkuk other than that he evidently wrote this book of the Bible. The fact that it was Habakkuk who wrote it actually tells us basically nothing from the rest of the Bible. Some prophets have a lot of meaning that are conveyed in their names. We saw on Christmas that Jesus means Yahweh saves. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. Samuel means God hears. Habakkuk has no clear meaning in the name of Habakkuk. It's either loosely related to the Hebrew word for embrace, which doesn't really make sense or fit within the book, or maybe it's just the name of a plant that was around at that time in that region. The fact that he's named Habakkuk tells us basically nothing. He calls himself a prophet, so we assume that that's what he is. But again, some prophets we know that there's other things about. We know that they're also priests. They're mentioned in the historical books of the Old Testament. We get details about their lives and stories throughout the book that they wrote, throughout the prophecy that they gave. But we don't really get that with Habakkuk. Maybe he's a priest, maybe he's not. Some legends say he may have visited Daniel in the lion's den. Or maybe he was the young boy that was brought back to life by Elisha. We don't really know. His history gives us absolutely nothing. So why does any of this matter? Why did I just take three to five minutes of my sermon to tell you all of these details to really get to the point of saying we have no idea who this guy is or anything else about him except for these words in this book? Well, I think the ambiguity here should actually help us to widen our understanding and widen our focus of Habakkuk's message. Because Habakkuk, for us, is just a voice. He's functionally nameless, jobless, meaningless. So he could be anyone. As we'll see in a moment, the book of Habakkuk deals with problems and questions that have plagued all people in all times. It has lament and doubt, hope and faith. And the more generic we understand Habakkuk to be, the easier it is for us to see ourselves in his words, to see our own context in his, to see the truths that we need and the truths that he says and receives. His words could be your words. He's just a voice, so he could be anyone. However, whereas the man doesn't affect the message very much, who Habakkuk is doesn't give us that much to go off of for what he's going to say in his book, The setting of Habakkuk really helps us understand what's happening. If you remember the history, the story of the people of Israel, this book is set at a very distinct inflection point. When the nation of Israel became a nation, after they had left Egypt, after they had conquered the land, been ruled by judges, and then asked for a king, they had Saul for their king before David was anointed and then eventually took over. David reigned well for the people and was followed by Solomon, who oversaw even more peace and prosperity. 
But when Solomon died, because his sons were so foolish, the kingdom, the nation of Israel, was split in two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And both kingdoms had long, slow declines filled with bad kings and sinful people until eventually both kingdoms were overthrown and the people were taken into exile. This book, Habakkuk, is written to Judah, the southern kingdom, right before the end, right before that final exile. Whereas the northern kingdom basically only had bad kings. Judah had a few good kings who would give glimmers of hope on occasion. And the last good king in the nation of Judah was Josiah, whose sons took over and undid all the good that he had done, and they didn't really rule for very long. The first one was almost immediately taken to Egypt as a slave, and he was replaced by the king of Egypt with the second son, Jehoiakim. And it's probably during Jehoiakim's reign that Habakkuk happens. And here's what 2 Kings has to say about the reign of Jehoiakim, about what's going on in the nation of Judah, in that kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, in this time when the prophecy of Habakkuk comes. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 36 through verse 7 of chapter 24 says this. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets." Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. This book, Habakkuk, is probably the last prophecy given to Judah before Babylon comes to overthrow them and send the people into exile. Before Nebuchadnezzar arrives and does what these verses say. And Habakkuk is one of those prophets whose words predicted this coming exile, the verses we're talking about. So what's happening here, the context of this book, is we are rounding the corner on the old nation of Israel, now Judah. And we are just about to change over into the time of exile under Babylon. Things have been, gotten progress- been getting progressively worse. There was a glimmer of hope in Josiah, and now things have really gone in the toilet. It's as bad as it could possibly be. And in that context, in that place, in that time, right before the end happens, the words of Habakkuk come in predicting that end. Habakkuk is seeing what's about to happen. But as the book begins, they're just dealing with the pitiful state of what once was a great nation. And into that setting comes this book of Habakkuk. It's set up as a conversation between Habakkuk the prophet and God. Habakkuk cries out to complain about the state of affairs, that everything has gotten so bad for God's people that nothing is as it should be. All he can see is evil everywhere. And God answers that complaint 
that plea and says that he is going to act in response to this evil. And his action that he is going to take is for Babylon to come and to conquer Judah. He's going to judge the wickedness of his people by sending Babylon to overthrow them. Well, believe it or not, Habakkuk does not love that answer. That's not what he was looking for. That's not what he was hoping for. He was hoping that God would act and make the righteous among God's people prosper so that they might be able to overthrow wicked nations just like Babylon. So Habakkuk's left to wonder, how can God's response to this injustice, to this terrible state of affairs for his people, in spite of all the promises that he had given them, how could his possible response be to make the Babylonians prosper? Aren't the Israelites supposed to be his chosen people? How is this right? If they're even more evil than the Israelites are, and yet they're going to conquer Israel, how can that possibly be God's response? Isn't this just more injustice? He asks God these things, and God responds again in a way that Habakkuk doesn't love. He doesn't change his mind. He tells Habakkuk that his plan is set in stone. The Babylonians are coming, and they're going to win. But he continues and says that that's not the end of the story. They'll win for a time. But there will come a day when the wicked Babylonians get what's coming to them. God will judge them even more harshly than he did Judah. So then, in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we get his final response. It's a prayer to God where Habakkuk acknowledges who God is and how he works. And it ends by Habakkuk rejoicing in the Lord. Saying that no matter how bad it gets... He will rejoice in and trust the God of his salvation. So that's the, the man of Habakkuk, a nobody. The setting of Habakkuk, a kingdom in ruins about to be overthrown. And really the flow of Habakkuk. It's an honest conversation between God and prophet. It has complaints and answers, plans and pleas, sorrow and joy. And verse 1 calls this book an oracle. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. But that word oracle could also be translated perhaps more literally as burden. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And I think when you read it, burden feels appropriate. This isn't necessarily a fun message that Habakkuk had to bring to his people. The prophets rarely got to bring fun messages. It's such a burden because it deals with heavy subjects. It's a book that very much lives in the real world and, help, and can help us deal with our very real questions. Questions like, how did God let that happen? Where is God in the midst of this? Why does it so often feel like the good guys never win? What am I to do? How am I supposed to respond when things are the way that they are? The biggest, most overarching message of the book of Habakkuk is here to give us is how to understand, to know, to think about God in the midst of evil. When everything seems to be going terribly, when everything only goes from worse to worse, when the greatest evil that we could ever imagine is what we're confronted with, how do we understand a good and sovereign God in the midst of those circumstances? When things are not good, how are we supposed to think about God? And that brings me to an important understanding, not only about Habakkuk, but really the entire Bible. It is about God before it's about us. If you're going into this book of Habakkuk looking for a how-to manual to help you navigate a crisis of faith, 
you're probably not going to find it. If you're going in looking for the silver lining whenever bad things happen, that there's something better always on the other side, you might not find that same idea that you're looking for. But if you're looking for what God has desired to show his people about who he is and how he works, even in the midst of messy and confusing circumstances, even in the midst of everything going the way that we thought it never should go, then I think you've come to the right place. Then I think Habakkuk is exactly what you need to know how to understand, to think about God in the midst of that evil. This book will show you God through the lens of pain and evil so that when you are in the midst of those same circumstances, you can know and trust who he is how he works, how he operates, that there is a plan in there. And Habakkuk is going to show us four major ideas over the next few months in response to that question of how to deal, how to think about God in the midst of evil. Here quickly are four major ideas from Habakkuk. First major idea from Habakkuk that we're going to see is that God will act against evil. The book begins with Habakkuk's complaint that he sees evil and it appears as if God isn't acting. So everything else in the book is built on God's response to evil in the world. What does he do with injustice? And the answer comes back with a resounding and resolute plan of action. God absolutely will act against evil. Now his action may not be what we wanted. It may not be what we intended. It may not be what we would do if it were up to us. It could be surprising, confusing even. But the God who is good will not let evil continue forever. So if you have felt wronged in your life, if you felt like you've been dealt the short straw, like no matter what you do or how well you try to live, all you can see around you is evil winning and good losing, then I think Habakkuk is for you. Perhaps you'll gain solace from the idea that God sees the evil perpetrated against you and when God sees evil, God acts. But I think Habakkuk can also subvert our expectations and show us that perhaps we're not always the victim we think we are. Sometimes we're the perp. Maybe we're the evil that God is acting against. But he absolutely will act against evil. But he will also use his creation for his purposes. That's the second major idea from Habakkuk that we'll see in this book over the next few months. At no point throughout the discussion between God and the prophet does the answer come back that God is trying his best and things just aren't working out the way that he intended. No, he will use his creation for his purposes. The evil people in Judah aren't doing as God asked, so what's an almighty to do, you know? The Babylonians have so many chariots, so many horses, such good tactics I mean, Judah never really had a chance against them anyway, so, I mean, why would God try to help them now? Habakkuk's making good points that God hadn't considered, so now maybe it's time for God to reevaluate, to try something else, you know? Who always gets things right on the first try? None of those things are how God acts throughout the book. The book doesn't present it as if God is fumbling through this and improvising along the way. He's not shocked. He's not surprised by anything that he sees. He's actually the active agent in everything that we see in this book. God is the one in charge throughout the entire book of Habakkuk. He is moving the nations across his map like risk without the dice. They aren't getting in the way of his plans. He's using them. 
and all things with them for his purposes to accomplish his plans. He will use creation for his own ends. So if you can't see the big picture, if you feel like your life has no direction, no meaning, no purpose, then I think Habakkuk is for you. This book can show us how God sovereignly works in our lives to accomplish his plans and his purposes. And I think for his people, that has to be a comforting notion. But if you think whatever direction your life is headed isn't one that you should be going, or maybe the idea of a sovereign God scares you, maybe it makes you feel like a robot or a pawn on a chessboard, then I think Habakkuk will have a challenge and a help for you as well whenever we get into it. But the third major idea we'll see in Habakkuk is that God will bring forth justice. When he acts against evil, and he will, as we've already seen, it is not and never could be an unjust action. He doesn't simply act against evil and perpetuate evil. He doesn't act against injustice and perpetuate injustice. At the end of his work, when he is done, justice is served. Though there may be a time that it feels like things aren't how they're supposed to be. Though there is a day when it appears as if the wicked are prospering. Though there is a day when it seems like his promises won't come to pass. He will not only act against evil using creation for his ends, but he will do so in such a way that justice is the final result. So if you've avoided the justice of God or society or individuals up to this point, If you are the one committing evil and you know it. If you're the one sinning against God with no regard for the consequences. Then I think for you Habakkuk is a warning. God's justice may seem slow but wait for it. It will surely come. For on the other hand if you've been the victim of injustice. You've been wronged, abused by people of the world. If evil seems to be winning in your fight against it. I hope you'll feel the comfort in these words from Habakkuk that God will bring forth his good and perfect justice. God not only acts, God not only acts sovereignly, but he acts sovereignly with the end result of good and perfect justice. That's what his people have waiting for us. And that justice comes against all men in all places, in all times. The only way to receive what you are due from God, the only way to avoid receiving what you are due from God, is for you to be saved from his justice by the one who is executing that justice. That's the final big idea from Habakkuk, that God will save his people. For so much of the book, it doesn't feel like it has a message of salvation. It feels like it's only judgment feels like it's only from worse to worse. You know, it's only things that are going to go from bad to worse. From injustice to injustice. It feels like it only has somber news and fearful judgment. But Habakkuk's final response, his final poem, his final psalm at the end, gives us, I think, a model for how to move forward in light of all these things. He trusts and hopes in the God of his salvation. He says that though things may get as bad as they possibly can, yet he will trust in God to save him, even in the midst of those circumstances. So I think Habakkuk is a book for us all. It's a gospel-shaped book with a gospel-shaped message. When confronted with the evil of our sin, God acted. 
He didn't sit idly by or allow us to continue in our sin. He intervened using all of creation for his plans. In the fullness of time, at the exact right moment, he sent Christ to die on the cross for sin. He used the petty malice of Pharisees and Sadducees, of Caesars and kings, to kill one man in Jerusalem. And that death is our justice. Christ died in the flesh to fulfill the law and to receive the justice that was due for our sin, for our evil. And because the justice of God has been satisfied and brought forth against Christ on the cross, he is now not only just, but also the justifier of sinners like you and me. God saves his people through the sacrifice of Christ in their behalf. When we respond to this message with hope and trust, just as Habakkuk did. The message of Habakkuk is the message of the Bible, which is the message of the gospel. That there is a good and perfect and holy God who acts against evil, sovereign over his creation, in order to bring about his justice against that which is evil and against sin. And through that action, he actually saves his people. I think when we get into it, we're going to see the gospel on every page of Habakkuk, just like we would if we got into any book of the Bible. The more we understand it, the greater light it will shine on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. So now here's what's about to happen. I'm going to read the entire book of Habakkuk. It's not that long. It's three chapters. Don't worry. But as I read, I want you to follow along in your Bible. I think it should be on the screen behind me as well. And just listen. Listen for the fear, the doubt, the lament. Listen for the hope and the promise. Listen for the major ideas that we've talked about. And look forward to hearing from this book on a deeper level as we engage it over these next few months. But most of all, listen for the gospel themes that run through the book. Listen for how it points us to the cross of Christ as the final answer for how to think about God in the midst of evil. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice, never go, or so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. 
You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects, all, uh, collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigayanoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, from the Holy One, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian in trouble, or did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master. With stringed instruments. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read your word with your people. Thank you for being a God who acts against evil, who doesn't allow it to continue for forever, but moves, who intervenes who acts sovereignly, using all of creation for your purposes. Thank you for making sure that your will is accomplished. For moving all things in such a way that you might be able to save your people. That when you act, you will bring forth justice. We love that we don't have to wait for it for forever, because it will come. We love that injustice does not get to be perpetuated against us for forever. Help us to wait in the meantime. Help us to endure in the meantime. And God, save us. When you act, when you use creation, when you bring forth your justice, for us, let that justice be to look to Christ on the cross and to extend your grace toward us. Help us. Let us see you in this book of Habakkuk and in every verse, on every page, in every book, throughout the entire Bible. Help us to understand your gospel, who you are, and what you've done 
for your people. Let this be what it needs to be to those who read it. Let it be balm to the souls of the weary. Let it be condemnation to those who need to understand that the just God is coming against us unjust people. But help for it to be a message of salvation to all. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.